Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Hey folks, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. We are again excited to join to welcome back Dr. John Eady, professor and Dennis Raveling Chair in Waterfowl Ecology with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology at the University of California, Davis, to continue on in the discussion of avian nest parasitism. And, and this time we're going to move into a more detailed discussion of how that phenomenon actually applies within, within waterfowl. And in particular, one species of waterfowl that many across North America are going to be very familiar with, the wood duck. It's, it's probably the species in which this phenomenon has been most well studied, at least within waterfowl. And and John has done a tremendous amount of work in his own in his own right, and he has a he and his collaborators have very innovative work that they've been doing over the past six or, or plus years. So John, thanks so much for your time and, and spending it with us here again. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. It's been fun. Thanks very much for having me. If you didn't catch the previous episode, I would encourage you to pause this one and go back and listen to that, that first episode with John because it provides a fantastic primer for what avian nest parasitism even is. And I think that kind of foundation is going to be important for, for an understanding uh, throughout this episode. So just with that said, let, let's set up this story here a little bit. Uh, you have studied, you've been at UC Davis for, for right at 25 years, and this has been one of your key research interests over those years. And you've contributed to, to, to the to the literature related to this topic for a number of species, golden eyes were some of your graduate research, but then increasingly you began to kind of focus on wood ducks in California. And a lot of folks in Eastern North America might be thinking, wait a minute, we have wood ducks in California? I, I never knew. So let's just start there. What's up with wood ducks in California? Where are they and what kind of system are they using there? Yeah, it's completely different. So yeah, th thanks Mike for that. Um, well, so I, yeah, as I, as mentioned, I came from I came from Canada and, and uh, did my did my uh, undergraduate work in Eastern Canada. I'm from Western Canada, and uh, you know, woodies are pretty common. They're a, they're a number one game bird back east. Um, I had no idea there were big populations of wood ducks in California when I when I moved down here 25 years ago. They actually have a, a completely disjunct distribution. So the big big population is you know sort of back east, particularly in the in the, the southeast, but but all the way up to the Great Lakes. And then, then there's a big gap, and then there's this Western population, and actually California. They're also up into uh, Oregon, Washington, a little bit of British Columbia, but California has has a, a, a fairly sizable population. I had no idea that they did. And incidentally, as an aside, we've done some genetics. Um, I think you've had uh, Phil Levretsky on your show, and and uh, he worked with Jeff Peters and Jeff and others, and we've also done some work showing that the wood ducks on the West Coast are actually. Uh, genetically differentiated from those on the east there's there's a genetic distinction between them. they're not different species but they're they're genetically and that's that's typical for a lot of birds there's a sort of east west continental divide john i don't think i realized that that there was that distinct genetic signature that leads me to the natural question do california wood ducks look the same as as eastern north american wood ducks <laughs> i, I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek thinking about you know i grew up in mississippi you live in california now and you and i have had have had chuckles with one another, but occasionally we'll yeah, be. Yeah. I remember last year we were at a at a conference, and 
I forget what the presentation was, but it was a graph showing maybe some aspect <laughs> of political views among states. And California was at one extreme, and Mississippi was at the other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I remember you and I kind of looking at one another out of the corner of our eyes. And so, no, but well, you know, California wood ducks. Uh, California wood ducks all have cans. They all wear sunglasses. Yeah. and they got a lot of tattoos. <laughs> But other than that, exactly. they're pretty much the same. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, the big difference is the habitat. So back east, you get a lot of these, you know, sort of more flooded wetlands, um, sort of the type of habitats that you probably grew up in. And, uh, but out here, woodies are mostly in the riparian, the stream system. So, I mean, California used to just have there are all these streams, right? That, that most of them are dammed now in California. But, but all these streams coming out of the Sierra, flowing down in the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley, and then out through, through the Golden Gate. Um, those all had these big, you know, sort of mile wide oak, big old valley oak, uh, riparian forests. Uh, you know, those big old oaks just are fantastic cavity trees. Plus they produce acorns, which are, you know, wood duck food. So, um, so very different habitat, much linear, much more linear. And in California, 90, God, I think they estimate 99% of that riparian habitat's gone. So big conservation mm-hmm. issue there. Um, and so now they're, you know, they're just in these really narrow riparian strips. So very different habitat compared to back east, um, but still a fairly sizable population. And uh, to, to their credit, California Waterfowl Association out here has uh, has done a big wood duck project for the last, uh, well, before I came, they, back in 25 years plus. So um, so now sort of, you know, nest, nest boxes are a pretty big part of, of uh and I think it could actually be more important than even Frank Belrose thought in terms of sustaining the populations out here compared to back east. So different, different, different bird ecologically. Yeah. Yeah. Now, have you been studying wood ducks for pretty much all of the 25 years that you've been at UC Davis? Yeah, actually I have. But it was, you know, so um, in our last episode, we talked about this behavior, nest parasitism or brood parasitism. And I, you know, I'd studied that in barrels and common gold and I in British Columbia. That was that was part of my Ph.D. work. Um, but when I moved down here, uh, to California for the Dennis Raveling chair, my work really became much more focused on waterfowl management and population ecology. So I, I really wasn't doing sort of, you know, some of the crazy behavioral stuff. Um, I was still interested in it. And, but the main reason, uh, that we got into woodies here is they're just a fantastic, um, species to work on with students. So I was a big, uh, proponent of hands-on learning for our students. It's tough. We're in a quarter system here in California. So. The kids are in class till June, and I wanted to find a way to give them, you know, these green kids hands-on experience, handling a bird, bandling a bird, you know, getting crapped on. Uh, and wood ducks are ideal. We have wood duck nest boxes 15 minutes from campus. So I can take kids out in a lab, three-hour lab, and get them banding ducks, you know, in April, May, and June while they're still in school. So that was that was the impetus of this, was setting up an intern project. So we did that on a bunch of ranches. Uh, to the point that we were getting up to 100 interns, undergraduate interns per year. They estimated that that half of all the majors in our department, the students in our major, uh, went through the Wood Duck internship. So it's kind of developed its own sort of, you know, legend. So that that was the reason for doing it. Plus, you know, I was interested in waterfowl. It was great to have just one of the, you know, the few breeding species in California. So it was a great system. And one of my other interests is sort of the links between um, management behavior and population dynamics. So for reasons that we may talk about, they're, they're a great model system for that. So that's how kind of it evolved. It wasn't, it wasn't a big research project. It was mostly a teaching. And, uh, and now we have 20 plus years of data and, uh, and we've gone pretty hardcore on it in the last, uh, the last six years. So that's, that's a bit of the history. And to that point, over the last six years, yeah, you have really elevated 
the the level of sophistication in your research, attributing that to some advances in technology, as is often the case. It wasn't a very high bar, Mike, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all too familiar with that. You know, it's, so I've made my, my career too, so in some respects. So, nothing wrong with yeah, that, anyway, John. Sorry, yeah. So let's move into that a bit where I, I guess I, I want you to describe the research that began about six years ago, what kind of partnership emerged. You, know, you obviously have this interest in avian nest parasitism and wanted to use wood ducks to help answer some of these questions. And and I don't know really where the genesis of the idea came, but you started uh, realizing there were some technologies available that would allow you to study this in finer detail than what we had ever really been able to, including individually marked birds, being able to identify the individual, which which hen was responsible for laying which egg in which nest box. And so you can just really get a, a almost complete picture of exactly what's happening there. So just describe the genesis of this idea as well as kind of how this study developed. Yeah, sure. We'll do. Uh, this is, this might take a minute or two. I want to start with, with the God, Frank Belrose. I mean, uh, you know, I, God, every time I go back and read his book, it just, it just blows me away with Richard Holm. It's just, I mean, what Frank knew, uh, and Art Hawkins, those folks were just, were just legendary. I also want to tip my hat to folks like Gary Hepp and Bobby Kenner. I mean, they've been studying woodies for a long time. I've learned a lot. My, my, I, so I have a really good friend, Bruce Lyon, who's a prof at UC Santa Cruz, another fellow Canadian expatriate that, you know, uh, got, we got kicked out of Canada. So we came down to California. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the only place that, it's the only place that accepts Canadians, eh? <laughs> uh, in any case, um, so, uh, and, and we, you know, we did our PhDs together and, and, you know, we did some of the earlier work on this behavior, nest parasitism, brood parasitism, did some, did some, you know, sort of more, um, sort of theoretical stuff. And, and then it just kind of sat, we would dabble off in it over the years. And then about six or seven years ago, we just, we, we, uh, we actually went on a birding trip together. So, you know, we should go back and do something on that. And, and I thought, well, you know, the woodies would be a really good si- uh, system to work on. We'd done a little bit of work together on Barrels Golden Eyes. So, so almost as a lark, we wrote a grant uh, for the National Science Foundation, um, which is a really, really sort of a very low acceptance rate, um, to really dive into this in a big way with applying some new technology, new genetics, new uh, this RFID tagging that I'll tell you about, and, and really dive into trying to understand what this behavior is about. We thought wood ducks are an ideal system. There's lots of work, folks like Rick Clausen and... Uh, uh, Mike Haramis, Haramis and, and lots of folks beforehand had done observational studies, but really not much was was known about the details, what females were doing it, why they were doing it, what were the circumstances. And then the other sidebar, because I always try to bring stuff back to management, is uh, Brad Semmel and Paul Sherman back in New York um, had published a series of papers talking about how nest, bro- nest box programs may not be a good thing. We may be killing them with kindness. So if we put boxes up in high densities, we may be facilitating this behavior, which leads to these large dump nests of 30, 40, 50 eggs and and reducing productivity of the population. So they had a bunch of papers that came out. I think there were some issues with those papers. Gary Hepp and I both sort of uh, had some concerns about them. But, but so there was a management, a clear management application as well. So when we set up our project with the interns, we set it up where we were contrasting high density situations where we put lots of boxes out, highly visible locations. And then we tried to create low density, more quote unquote natural situations with lower densities, boxes moved away from this, the waterways, a bit more hidden, a bit more natural cavity situation. 
to see whether that management action had any impact on this behavior or on population productivity. So two, twofold interest there. So then, then um, I guess the two innovations were at, at the time, and this has been around for a while, you know, we've got this whole toolkit of genetic methods now that have developed over the last 20 years. Um, started with the old uh, DNA fingerprinting, became more and more sophisticated where, you know, whereas now with, with what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, you can, you can assay tens of thousands of genetic markers. Um, and that, that provides a number of tools. Uh, all the way from determining parentage of individual offspring, looking at genetic structure of the population. I think Phil, if he was on your program, certainly has talked about understanding, you know, sort of uh, um, uh, population structure in the mallard complex and, and, you know, sort of feral mallards and things like that, uh, the black duck mallard hybridization. So there's just a whole gamut of questions that one can ask with this new genetic toolkit. So, so there is one set of tools. The other was was this uh, this other set, and I I I, I caught on to it with uh, with one of my other collaborators, so Bruce Lyon at Santa Cruz is one, and then Eli Bridge, he's at Oklahoma. So for a long time, fisheries biologists, for example, have used what are called pit tags, passive integrated transponders. Um, we use them in pets. It's the little the little glass chips that you put inside, and it's just it's just a little a little bit of coated wire. It doesn't emit any any power, any signal itself. So you have to have a reader, a radio frequency identification device. You know, it's like a wand, a vet would use a wand. And that actually uh, sends power. It charges the, the, uh, the, the chip to actually emit um, just a, a simple code, a simple uh, hexanumerical code that's read. And, and those chips then are unique. So that's how a vet, if you chip your dog or your cat, they wave the wand over, the reader actually queries the chip. The chip sends back its unique identification code. And you know that, yes, indeed, this is FIDO. Well, we could do the same thing with individual birds. And it means two things, though. One is we had to attach these, these pit tags to the birds. Um, people had done that with smaller samples with pastoring birds. They put it on a leg band, but, um, but that's much harder to read. And we also wanted to do it with ducklings, and you can't put a leg band on a duckling. So we were able to use the fish technique, and we actually just inject it you know, subcutaneously in the back of the skin. And we can do it on a duckling. So now everything we've we've tagged over six or seven thousand ducklings. We've tagged over seven hundred females with these tags. But the secret was, and this was Eli's genius, the readers themselves, the ones they use for fisheries, these are massive things. Like they send them across a stream, and there's one reader, probably costs tens of thousands of dollars. You can buy smaller ones, smaller ones from like Biomark, but they're still about twelve hundred. We wanted to put them up on like three hundred nest boxes. That wasn't going to be possible at that price tag. Eli developed this, this reader um, that you could build for $50, and so we did. And so we now have readers up on about 300 nest boxes, 250 nest boxes. We have every single individual in the pop, every single female in the population that goes into a nest box, and every single duckling that hatches and comes back. So that's one source of information. So every, you know, so basically, it's a wired population, at least from the female side. Yeah. We're focusing on that on the reproductive, and at the same time, we're also getting blood samples from all of the ducklings, even unhatched eggs, as well as the females. So we can look at questions of parentage: whose eggs is really whose? We can look at questions of kinship: are you related to this female? Is this a sister? Is this your daughter? Um, we can look at population structure between each of our different ranches. And so, you know, there's no genius here really on the part of the researchers. It's just new technologies, like when radio telemetry came about. And now, we're, I mean, it's just, it's been boggling 
we had we could not have anticipated what was actually going on underneath the surface once we started looking. So that that was that was sort of where we got to. We started that about uh, in 2014, so about six years ago. The interesting thing about technology, it needs to do a couple of things or it needs to have a couple of characteristics. One is it has to be able to collect the data, uh, the, the type of data that we need. But it also has to be, well, I guess, multiple things, logistically feasible. Um, like you said, you know, you can't you can't attach a huge device. In, in some cases, they're just too large to be uh, to to be applicable. And the other, it has to be it has to be affordable. You know, when you're talking about what you the way you've described it, wanting to attach those those readers to several hundred boxes, and then needing to deploy individually, mark thousands of of individual ducks. Yeah, the, the cost becomes uh, a, a factor pretty quick. How much are the pit tags, John? So the pit tags are about three bucks a piece. I mean that 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 was where NSF oh and so 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 uh, many thanks to NSF for supporting this. So the tags themselves are just a couple bucks a piece. I mean you know so you can do for two thousand dollars you can do you know you can do a thousand ducklings or a thousand females, and then the readers are fifty bucks a piece and yeah. I had no idea they were that they were that inexpensive. No, it's I mean that's that's I mean the whole the whole thing was still you know we're spending it's probably I don't know fifty thousand a year or something and all this sort of the equipment and supplies and so forth but that's doable it's not five hundred thousand um, and yeah. then once we buy the readers it's it's a one time cost other than you know replacement for repairs so it's that it's really opened up um, you know sort of a whole new uh, series of questions and things that we can learn. Um, and it's not even just about this behavior, Mike. Some of this is, a, I mean, one of the things we're really surprised at is getting a good handle on recruitment, right? I mean, that's that's really the measure of your productivity. It's not how many eggs you lay. It's not even how many ducklings leave the nest. It's how many actually recruit back into the population. That's where your management at the end of the day is accounted for. And, and it's really a hard thing to do because we don't know how many of the ducklings that were produced in our population actually come back recruit to the population, and contribute to making more ducks. And that's what our management seeks to do. And when you say recruit to the population, you're referring back to the spring population the next year? Yeah, productive adults. Yep. Yeah. We had some other students on there. As you are well aware, there's a multi-state study, wood duck nest box study yep. occurring in the eastern U.S. And we had a couple of those students and technicians on oh, with us. Yeah. Um, uh, on on another episode, and we were talking about that uh, recruitment and you know how they were measuring, and it's the same way getting those. Actually, they're measuring it as the females coming back to the following spring to be uh, contributing breeders to that to that population. So sometimes I just like to make sure we're connecting some dots for our listeners here. No, that's great, and that's exactly it. I mean, that is the measure of success. I mean, cer- certainly in waterfowl, well, at least not not in most ducks, not in geese, but uh, the, the males really are not doing a whole lot in terms of reproduction of the mating with the female, guarding her, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, mate guarding and so forth in most species. So, it really, comes down to the female recruits, and though, and it's not just that they survive. If they survive and they don't reproduce, they're they're not really contributing to the next uh, the next generation. So, it's the recruiting returning females the next year. Not just that they survive, but that they're actually breeding. They're actually laying yeah. eggs and contributing. Yeah. So that's that's the measure of recruitment, and that's that's the ultimate measure of population growth or decline. And of course, the other thing that makes this level of study possible is the fact that we can capture so many of these wood ducks, uh, whether it be the hens or the ducklings, or extract DNA from the eggs, uh, and that's that's enabled largely by their use of uh, of man-made, human-made, you know, constructed wood duck boxes, right? makes it a lot easier. I mean, one one of the things with this technique, the RFID and the pit tagging technique is they actually have to pass through an antenna 
because as the reader actually powers the antenna and the antenna queries the chip as the female passes through. And the read ranges, you know, are often quite small. It's a matter of, you know, sort of centimeters. So the nice thing with the cavity nester is we can put the antenna right around the entrance. And every time a female goes in and out, it just queries her. It's just, it's just like a scanner at the grocery store. But, but you know, you can't scan it from aisle five. You got to scan it, you know, at, at the checkout counter. So it's the same sort of idea. Another quick question here for you, John, with respect to California wood ducks. Are there any degree of natural cavities? You might have said this at the outset, and I just uh, I missed it. Yeah, well, I mean, so I think uh, certainly there were in the past. Um, we've actually we've spent some time looking for them. There are some, for sure, Mike, and it depends on where you are. There's still some nice um, riparian strips. Um, Paul Bondison's ranch. Paul was the, uh, the is the past president of DU and chair of the board. Paul is just fantastic, and he's. He's allowed, he has allowed us to study the wood ducks in his population. And so he's in a nice old sort of riparian area in the Butte Sink area. So there's tons of natural cavities up there. But a lot of these other places in California, especially, it's just like a one tree wide riparian strip. Um, a lot of the old growth, the old oaks are down. And so there just isn't anywhere near as many cavities as, say, back east, you know, if you, when you look at some of the hardwood forests. So um, so yeah, there certainly are natural cavities. I, I actually think in California, I, I don't know, we haven't done the calculation, but I would say a sizable population of California's wood ducks probably are relying on these nest boxes that the volunteers from CWA and DU and other organizations have helped, uh, have helped put up. So I, you know, it, it can be a really important management tool when you've lost the habitat. Well, John, let's, let's talk about some of some of what you found, we've outlined the research here. You're studying wood ducks in, in the Central Valley of California. You have a very intensively marked sample of birds uh, as well as the boxes, and you're trying to answer questions related to nest parasitism. So, again, I'm going to open the door for you. We, you can talk about the key questions that you were interested in, what was it you were really trying to get a handle on, uh, and what are some some revealing insights that you've that you've gained from this work sure well so so we initiated this i mean partly was just to get a better handle on the population dynamics of these birds but the other was was this behavior this nest parasitism behavior really hard to see who's doing what to whom you know um if you listen to the previous podcast a number of ideas out there are females doing this because they're making the best of a bad situation or other females doing it because they're getting some extra eggs on the side What's driving this? Is this young females, old females, females in bad condition, good condition? Lots, lots of theory out there, lots of ideas, but but really tough to collect the data to do it. And um, you can do it by, you know, sort of do it by the way we used to capturing a hand on a box. But it turns out that's such a subsample of all the females. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you some numbers. But one, one of the first things that came out, so we, we wanted this tagging to try to follow females around. Who's going where? What boxes are they going into? Um, are they laying eggs? And, and it's not even just this behavior. It's also telling us something about female survival. It's telling us about patterns of nest use. So all of our ideas about nest site selection and what makes a good nest site and a bad mess, nest site. And it also, we think, is helping us inform um, how we might better manage these uh, these wood duck populations, these nest box populations to make them more productive, more successful. So one of the first things we did, like normally, if you talk to most wood duck biologists, you'll capture one or two hands in the nest. Every once in a while, you'll see two hands at the same time. But, you know, it's pretty much serendipitous. And, and so all of our assumptions about nest use and behavior based mostly on those captured and banded females. That's that's classic waterfowl biology, right? Like we just do. We do that with ground nesting birds. We do that with cavity nesting birds. And so you find one or maybe two. 
once we started using the RFID, it blew us away. So we have females that are going into as many as 50 different boxes. I mean, that then you know, and, and it ranges from zero. There's some or one, you know, so there's some females. Actually, there's some females that just go into a single box and that's it for their entire year. And then there's this whole other group, and it almost seems to be bimodal. We're starting to refer to them as rovers and stayers. We've got this group of females that are just kind of stay-at-home moms, and they're doing kind of the regular duck thing. They might check out a few boxes early in the year. That's when Woody's look for nest sites. And then you got this mall gang of rovers who are just going, <laughs> you know, skelter-helter all over the place. I mean, they're aware they go into every single nest box on a property. And so it's not like they don't know. They know the territory inside and out, and they're in those boxes multiple times. Uh, I mean, it's just bizarre. So, yeah, I mean, so there, it, that variation in females. And then when you look at boxes, it's the same sort of story. Some boxes will get almost no use whatsoever. Some won't be used at all. And a box right next door will have, I can't remember what our record is now. I think it's about 47 different females coming onto that box. So not only are single females going to lots of boxes, but single nest boxes, some are being explored, used, and eggs laid in by, by multiple females. We had no idea. If you just compare a graph of the old standard graph of this nest was used or not versus this one was mm -hmm. visited by all these females, I mean, they're just, they're not even on the same scale. So there's, there's this whole underworld. And I mean, people like Frank, Frank Belrose knew this. I mean, and, and anybody, Gary Hepp, anybody who knows anything about wood ducks, yeah, we see them exploring around. They go zooming around in groups, but we had no idea of the extent and now we're getting a better sense of the uh, what they're doing and also the individual heterogeneity. We closed off in the last podcast talking about that. So there's huge differences in, you know, among females in how they are gaining information. I'll say that in sort of a, in a sort of general way and using that information uh, and, and how, they're, uh, how they're actually shaping the reproductive strategies, if you will, the reproductive patterns. So, so that was that just blew us away. Well, you know what we need to do, John, is we need to replicate this study. And going back to an earlier graph that I referenced in Mississippi to see if what we're seeing in California just isn't a product of them being crazy California wood ducks. Or so this this may be just free love in California, you know. Maybe, maybe wood ducks right. back east are much more respectful. And <laughs> yeah, um, I, I suspect not. I think this is it's the same thing. And in fact, I'll just say we just we actually just, Joe Marty is just uh, we're working with Joe Marty, um, and we're just starting up a starting up a project working on black bellied whistling ducks too. And so I, I suspect we're going to find a lot of the a lot of the same patterns. So, but that's only, that's only part of the story. So the RFID stuff is telling us who's going what and where. Um, and it also tells us things about what nest boxes are attractive or why do some boxes perhaps get too much attention? Maybe that's what causes them to be, you know, less productive. That's why we get these huge numbers of eggs. But, but now with the genetics, we can actually say who's laying eggs where, and that's, that's opened up something else completely different. So in the earlier podcast, and I think maybe at the beginning of this one, I talked about sort of the individual heterogeneity and and reasons for why females might do this behavior. It turns out there there really are four four pathways a young female can go. She cannot breed in a given year, and we know that because we have females that are back. They're checking out these boxes, and they're not laying any eggs. And that for me is like I don't get it, um, particularly in a bird like a wood duck, which you know they mature after one year of age. Golden eyes, for example, don't until two or three. Um, why would you waste that year? So that's that's intriguing. What's up with those females? There are other females that will only lay some eggs parasitically. They never try to incubate. They're just little little teenage gangs roving around the neighborhood, 
laying eggs like Easter bunnies in other birds uh, in other birds' nests. There are your traditional nesters, the ones that we thought we only had before. So a female that lays a clutch and incubates it, sort of the standard the standard mom thing. And then and then there's these females that are doing both. So they're laying some eggs parasitically. They're, they're parasitic, and then they're also establishing a nest of their own. So all four flavors, and it really fits nicely with that model that Mike Sorensen originally developed, and Bruce and I sort of um, modified a little bit, that, that says that this is a behavior that allows female a whole suite of reproductive alternatives, depending on their state and the ecological conditions that prevail at that time. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not surprising when you think about waterfowl and their flexibility, but, but now we actually have uh, some of the data to show that. Okay, so within within those those groups, do you have females that are kind of trading between the groups, so to speak? Do they employ one strategy one year, and will they then come back the next year and do something entirely different, or are they kind of specialize in each of those four groups? Yeah, we're just getting those data now. So this is a six year study. Um, we're into our six year now, two thousand and twenty. Uh, we now have I can't remember what we have. We have probably about one hundred, I think one hundred eighty eight. Or so ducklings now that have come back and, and recruited into the population. We're actually getting grand ducklings now as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're now actually able to follow not just single cohorts, but multiple generations of females through. So we can look at moms, we can look at their kids, and we can look at their kids. So we can ask questions about what females do over their lives. We can ask questions about um, is there any family tendency, any heritability, if you want to use the jargon, um, to any of these kind of traits. So we're just starting to parse that out now. We, we do know that there don't seem to be any professional parasites, females that only only lay eggs as parasites and never have a nest of their own. But that's hard to say because we get a lot of young females. They only do that in their first year and then they die. So does that make them a professional parasite? I don't know. So we're, we're just starting to uncover that now, Mike. And, and that's actually, um, I've got three PhD students working on this and two masters. So we're just starting to go through this massive data that we have now to, to try to sort that out. My gut in, um, feeling is that yes, there is. There very much is variation in female personalities. I don't know that it's an either or. It's not sort of a bimodal thing, but but I think they're very much our female personalities. And what we're also discovering, uh, another PhD student raised a whole bunch of wood ducks in captivity, and he did all these these assessments of their behavioral traits, their shyness, their boldness. But then we've been able to release them back out because there's it's part of a captive rearing program in association with the state. And so they are now recruiting back into the population. So we know what they were like as kids, the size of the eggs, you know, how big of a duckling they were, who their mother was, and now we can actually ask what they do as adults. And so there clearly are differences, just like your dog. There's differences in, in these females' uh, quote-unquote personalities. Uh, and I think, again, it just shows that there's incredible variation, incredible flexibility amongst these females. The trick now is what we're really trying to winnow down is, you know, what factors tend to lead to certain pathways and what are the consequences, both from an individual perspective for success, but again, bringing it back to the management. So what, what does this mean from, from a management perspective? Uh, how might our, how might our management practices either help or hinder, um, you know, some of the outcomes of this variation? John, is there any, is there any pattern in terms of the likelihood of a or the, the probability of a of an egg hatching if it were parasitically laid or laid by the host like, because you can identify you know you know I think I have this right you know if an egg was laid parasitically or if it was laid by the actual incubating hen right is there any pattern there 
Yeah, there is, but there's actually there's two or three reasons for that. So, as you know, Mike, you know, it's a, a number of these eggs are laid after the the host female begins to incubate um, those parasitic eggs. Uh, that's that's well known for for wood ducks and and other species of brood parasites. Which again makes no sense to me. We know that nest is being incubated. I don't know why a parasite doesn't. So so those eggs obviously don't hatch. Uh, and I, and I don't have that one figured out. I got some crazy ideas, but I don't want to display my complete ignorance on this podcast. So I'll, I'll leave those <laughs> until I, I can get a little bit more support or else I convince myself they are absolutely crazy. It never, it never stops me from exposing mine. Yeah. Right? But, you know, you be yourself. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've learned from your example. <laughs> um, Very well. Uh, but there do seem to be differences bet- between these females. And, and, you know, I do get a sense that some of these parasitic females are just the eggs. We've done a little bit of analysis and it's, it's all preliminary. So this may change. Uh, Caitlin Wells is a postdoc who's done some of this and she's now at, at uh, Colorado State. And um, it looks like the uh, egg size is a big issue. I mean, you know this for waterfowl, right? I mean, females are making these big energy rich eggs and egg size correlates to duckling size. Duckling size correlates to survival. Chris Nikolai has shown this as well with Nevada wood ducks recently, and Jim Sedinger or um, Ben Sedinger, and uh, and so the egg size of these parasitic eggs is often smaller, and the ducklings are smaller. We're just getting all the survival data sort of analyzed now, but it looks like those smaller ducklings are not surviving as well. So I, I you know, so here's my sort of um half-baked sort of interpretation now is i think females are playing an egg game it's really a clutch size game i i can make a few bigger beefier eggs and maybe i'll invest more incubating and and, and nesting or I'll, I'll make a lot more eggs but they're going to be smaller and maybe at the end of the game you get sort of the same payoff but it's two ways to end at the same point you know so i've got a lot more eggs they're just not doing as well but i can lay more of them versus i'll lay fewer of them they may do better. They may survive better. But again, like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the real measure is not just how many hatch or how many leave the nest, but how many actually recruit back into the breeding population. So that's, that's what I think, what's unique about our study and also the Mississippi study, the, the South Carolina with Rick Kaminsky and all those folks. Um, getting, getting those true measures of recruitment is pretty unique for a waterfowl population. It's tough to do. And the big challenge is like, how do you mark a duckling so you can actually catch it as an adult? We've used web tags. Everybody's used web tags. But I, I, my worry is we weren't getting a lot of those ducklings back. And I thought they might just be little bass lures, you know, little little silver tag on the web of a foot as a duckling swimming. It'd be a great way for a bass uh, to snap them up. So so I, the pit tags are, are providing all sorts of new information. Let, let me give you one other example. This has nothing to do really with the, um, if you don't mind, with the uh, the CBP per se. But this is something, so at that NADS conference, Gary, Gary Hepp gave a really nice talk on some population modeling that he and, and um, um, uh, 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 some of his colleagues had done. And they were looking at um, recruitment rates and, and, and modeling the viability of, um, of their wood duck population. And, and were convinced based on what they saw for recruitment that those populations wouldn't be stable. They had to be supplemented by birds coming in from outside. And, and when we look at just our recapture from the banding, that's how most people do it. We get about a five to six percent recruitment rate, which is which is pretty low and, and might not be enough to sustain a population. When we do it by the RFIDs, it almost doubles because we're missing wow. some of those females. We don't catch them on nest. So our recruitment rates were up to about 14 percent, which is, was based on Gary and, and uh, his folks, his colleagues uh, estimates was was uh, 
would be more than enough to sustain the population. So just our ideas about whether our management practices or habitat conditions could sustain a population based on recruitment rates, that could be fundamentally changed by how we acquire that information and the techniques that we use to get it. So that's actually pretty exciting. I think it's going to open up some uh, some newer ideas about population dynamics, um, you know, in these wood duck populations. With respect to the frequency of this uh, nest parasitism of the eggs laid in the nest, when we have these large, these uh, super large clutches, dump nest as they're oftentimes called, uh, were you able to identify any factors that were responsible for increased rates of nest parasitism? Like, because the traditional question is, is there something that we can do from a management perspective to reduce the frequency of, of brood paras- of nest parasitism? The other question is, is your research kind of saying maybe we don't need to worry about that or is there is that lost reproductive opportunity? Can we reduce the frequency of nest parasitism through box placement? And if we do so, does that take advantage of what would otherwise be lost reproductive output by those for those eggs that are not hatched? You see where I'm going? Uh, absolutely, and those are great questions. Great questions. So the whole the whole dump nesting thing, yeah, absolutely. What what is it that drives that? Um, so we've done a bunch of analyses. I'll just quickly quickly outline a couple. Of them. And many years ago, back earlier on, I, when I had one PhD student who did all the side project, we we set up an experiment where we put um, dummy eggs in nests, and we put some shells and down to simulate a hatched nest, and to see if if uh, females would avoid or to choose those nests, and and there was no effect whatsoever. Uh, females would definitely lay eggs that are uh, in a box that already has eggs, so they don't seem to be dissuaded. And then, and then with Charlotte Roy, we did an, a retrospective analysis of some of our longer-term data, and the only thing that predicted whether a nest box would be used next year was whether it was used last year. So whether it was successful or not didn't matter. Whether it was parasitized or not didn't matter. In fact, nests that were parasitized last year were more likely to be parasitized this year. We also did analyses of a bunch of habitat factors, and there were a few correlates, you know, things like um, visibility, uh, proximity to water. I mean, you know, common sense kind of things that you would expect. So those highly visible boxes tend to get more, you know, more eggs laid in them, more likely to be parasitized. Now with the RFID, I mean, it's just taken that through the roof. And we actually have a, I have a student looking at that now. So if we just used it by nest box use, that's sort of a one zero thing, right? It was used or not. It's not a very powerful analysis. Now we, we have anywhere from zero to 50 visit or 50 females visiting and we've got a whole continuum. Uh, and, and what we're seeing, Mike is, I mean, it, it's a bar scene. It's fundamentally a bar scene. You remember this from your college days, you got two bars side by side, the same beer, the beer is the same temperature, the same loud music is playing. Everybody's thronging to one bar and nobody's even going into the one next door. It's basically a clique. Uh, what it is that does that, I mean, I think it's basically a follow the leader response. One of the areas, another one of my students is looking at is using this whole Facebook social networking analysis tools that you can do, that you can use. I mean, it's really cra- crazy statistical analyses. So we're doing that with the wood ducks and finding that there are indeed these, it's like a high school clique. There are followers and there are leaders. There are females that are the center of these cliques. Where they go, others will follow. And I think if you watch wood ducks in the wild, you'll see that's happening. You know, one female will go and a bunch of other females will come in and she'll go in the box and then other females will go in the box. And hmm. I mean, it just from it reminds me of a high school clique or a bunch of college students checking out, you know, a new pub. And so I think what's happening is you're just developing these social conventions. Uh, it may be certain characteristics of the boxes that could be um, initiating that. But once it's set up, it really doesn't matter. 
So from a management perspective, we've wondered two things about the density of boxes, but also the visibility. Um, we've actually looked at, at the productivity and certainly what happens when you get these big, big dump nests, um, you know, productivity is going to go down. A lot of the eggs don't hatch. And that's when we set up our, our initial study sites, we intentionally set them up under experimentally high and experimentally low density. And indeed, in the high density, we got higher levels of parasitism, lower levels of hatch success. Um, sort of the things that Brad Semmel and Paul Sherman had talked about. However, when you actually look at the total number of young produced from these high density or low density areas, it was actually slightly higher from the sites that had high density. So these, these populations with high levels of, of brood parasitism actually produced more ducklings. Now we don't know about the quality of the ducklings per se. They may be, yeah. you know, maybe they're smaller. Maybe, you know, that's where the recruitment comes in. When you, when you say high density, you're talking high population density, not high, high box po- density, yeah. right? Both. It's both. One leads to the other. One leads okay. to the other, although they're not, they're not completely correlated. So I think what happens is when, you know, here's, here's the deal. So I kind of jumped into the middle of the story there. I mean, typically what we do is when we put up boxes for, for wood ducks or other cavity nesting birds, you know, if one is good, then 20 is better, right? So we, we try to maximize <laughs> the, the nesting opportunities. That makes sense. Yeah. Like put, put a bunch out there. The more birds you get, that's got to be better. But, th- but then what, you know, what, what Samuel and Sherman and others have found is that's when you get a lot of this, uh, what's called dump nesting, you know, 30, 40 eggs that never hatch. Um, hatch success goes down. Um, and, and there was concerns that, no, maybe we shouldn't be putting out high densities of boxes. Well, well, the, so we set up these low density box sites and high density. What happens is the high density box sites eventually build up a high density of birds. Just so, so it is correlated. But I see. Yeah. But, but as I was saying, yes, you had less parasitism and higher hatch success in the low density, but the total production was actually higher. The total number of ducklings, at least, that leave the nest was higher under the high density. So so that's the manager's dilemma. You know, do you want to do something that sort of maximizes hatch success or do you want to do something that maxima- maximizes total production? Our, our mindset, what we tell folks now is, well, you know, really what you might want to do is, is earlier on when you're setting up a program, Maybe put a bunch of boxes out, get, use that follow the leader response, get those birds queuing into it. And maybe at that point, that's when you want to sort of, maybe you take some of those boxes down or you move them, you spread them out a little bit uh, and, and, and even just reduce the local density or kind of use it to seed other populations. Um, that might be a way to sort of reduce, I, I don't know, this is just a purely a hypothesis. It might be a way to reduce, yeah. uh, reduce some of that sort of follow the leader response and, and get birds using other boxes. Because ideally what you'd like is sort of a, a broader distributed population rather than just one sort of concentrated population that could, you know, sort of ebb and flow more radically. This is a, just a, a fantastic conversation, very intriguing and just phenomenal, the amount of information that you've been able to gain through this through this, this intensive study of this, you know, model system for, for studying this particular phenomenon and the way you've been able to go about it is, is ingenious. And, you know, it's just, uh, I, I really hope that this gets, uh, that this gets conducted in other locations. So you begin to can begin to answer some of those questions at larger scales, larger spatial scales. And I know that's on your mind and it sounds like you're already kind of collaborating with others uh, east of the Rockies, maybe not on wood ducks just yet, but uh, nevertheless, every incremental step forward is, is an exciting, is an exciting one. Um, so I know we're going to have to let you go uh, because you've got some other things on your schedule right now. And I still have a dozen or more questions. We've, <laughs> we've answered, we've yeah. answered a ton already. And I know people are going to find this 
an exciting uh, pair of episodes. Can I throw one last thing we didn't talk about, just, just to cue it up, because it's also, it, it sort of gets back to why, why this may be common a waterfowl, and it was sort of on one of the things we thought we might talk about. An interesting thing with waterfowl is that females are the philopatric sex. In other species of birds, it's the males. That means that females coming back to the same area could be related. Um, you know, so it could be mothers and daughters or sisters that are, that are doing these behaviors. So that was another sort of impetus for our study. Now with the genetics, we can get a handle on that. Our early results indicate that yes, many of them are, but many of them are not. But it just, I just wanted to sort of leave that out there as another layer of intrigue in this system that's unique to waterfowl makes them sort of such a fun system to, to study this phenomena with is because of the possibility that there could be family relationships that underlie some of these, uh, these social networks and these, these interactions among females. So just wanted to, to put that out there as well as one last thought. Well, thank you for that, John. And if when we go back and listen to this podcast, we realize that, oh, shoot, we didn't ask those six or dozen questions. Would you be available for us to come back on and talk with you about that again? Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to listen to me, <laughs> you know me, I know how to, I know how to talk. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, John. This has been, uh, this has been great. And I know, I know people are going to enjoy it. So thanks, John. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much, Mike. Pleasure. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. John Edian. Very delighted to call him a friend and to have him on the podcast for this extended discussion. It's been very exciting for me and I know it will be for you too, the listener. We thank, as always, our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does editing these podcasts and getting them hosted out to you, the listeners. To you, the listeners, we do thank you for your time and spending with us on this podcast. We thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.